Come on. All right. Hey, everybody, come in. Everybody looks so great today. I'm glad you're here. You see all those big kids we had up here earlier? Yeah, not too long ago, they were right here. Yeah, and that big kid, too. That's right. I'm just a big kid, too. No, you're a little kid. Well, that's good. God loves the little children. The Bible says that, and it says we should pray. I was a short kid, too. It's okay. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love children. You love little kids and big kids and short kids and tall kids. Thank you that you love each and every one of us. Thank you that you came as a little child Christmas Day so that we might know you and be with you forever. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Slow down. Good luck catching him. more items and I have places to put them here. All right. Well, you want to get out your sermon outline. Hopefully that's in there with all the other inserts. If so, it says the glory of the kingdom on it. And you'll want to have that so you can follow along. We are at the end of Matthew 15 as we speed through the Gospel of Matthew. In the, uh, the last 11 verses uh, there. It's been a great day, but it's not over. There's still much for us to learn about what it means to worship. <coughs> if you would join with me and turn to Matthew 15 in your uh, Bibles, devices, look on the outline, uh, however you can access the scriptures, that's a good thing. And so please listen carefully as I read, as this is the word of God. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. 
After sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we come to this amazing gospel to learn about Jesus. And he does something here he's already done, and yet it's so different. Help us to understand the difference. Help us to understand the gospel. Help us to understand how we should respond to his healing touch. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always, for this we need your grace. Help us learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever heard of Christmas in July? Well, today we have July at Christmas time. So it's just a state of mind. It's all fine. It'll be 35 degrees by Wednesday. So I want to describe a scene to you this morning. I want you to imagine, you have to use your imagination this morning. I want you to imagine the scene of a retiree, an old man alone in the world who does something very odd every week. He's a very old man now, and every week he takes a walk down a Florida beach. The sun sets like an orange ball on the horizon, the waves slapping the sand, the smell of salt water stinging the air. The beach is vacant, no sun to entice the sunbathers, not enough light for the fishermen. So aside from a few joggers and strollers, the gentleman is alone. He carries a bucket in his bony hand, a bucket of shrimp. It's not for him, and it's not for the fish. It's for the seagulls. He walks to an isolated pier, cast in gold by the setting sun, and he walks out to the end of the pier and stops. And he puts down the bucket, and the time has come for his weekly ritual, and he just stands there and waits. And soon the sky becomes a mass of dancing dots. The evening silence gives way to the screeching of birds, lots and lots of birds. They fill the sky, they cover the moorings, they're on a pilgrimage to meet this old man. And for a half hour or so, this bushy-browed, shoulder-bent old gentleman will stand on the pier surrounded by the birds of the sea until his bucket is empty. But even after the food's gone, his feathered friends linger. They linger as if they're attracted to more than just the food. They perch on his hat. They walk on the pier. They all share a moment together. See, the old man on the pier couldn't go a week without saying thank you to his friends, the birds. See, the old man was Eddie Rickenbacker. And if you were alive in October 1942, which most of you were not, but if you were, you would remember the day that he was reported missing at sea. Everyone I know who lived through World War II remembers this. I can remember my grandfather, Wild Bill Silvernail. I didn't make it up. A lieutenant colonel during World War II, serving in the Army Air Force, as it was known then, telling me the stories of Eddie Rickenbacker. 
Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was a larger-than-life hero to Americans at that time. He was an American fighter ace in World War I and a Medal of Honor recipient. There are at least a dozen books written about his life. Some of them are Ace of Aces, and one of them is simply titled A Great American Hero. And there's lots more. Eddie Rickenbacker now has been sent on a secret mission to deliver a message to General Douglas MacArthur. And so with a hand-picked crew, he takes a B-17 flying fortress and sets off across the South Pacific on his way to the Philippines to deliver this message to General MacArthur. And somewhere along the way, the crew gets lost, their equipment stops working, the fuel runs out, and the plane goes down. All eight crew members escaped into the life raft. They battled the weather, the water, the sharks, and the sun. But most of all, they battled, battled the hunger. And for after eight days in a life raft, all their rations were gone. And unknown to them, the search for survivors was called off twice. Only the pleas of his family and the outcry from the American people kept sending the search planes back out. But the crew lost at sea, didn't know any of that. In fact, one crewman, Alexander Kazimarzik, died and was buried at sea. The life raft was very small. The ocean was huge, and they ran out of options. It would take a miracle for them to survive. And a miracle occurred. After an afternoon devotional service in the life raft, the men said a prayer and tried to rest. And as Eddie Rickenbacker was dozing off with his hat pulled down over his eyes, something landed on his head. He would later say that he knew it was a seagull. He didn't know how he knew, he just knew. And a seagull meant food, if he could catch it. Very slowly and very carefully, he reached up and he caught it. And the flesh was eaten, and the intestines were used as fish bait, and the crew survived for 24 days. Now the big question is, what's a seagull doing hundreds of miles from land? God only knows. But whatever the reason... Eddie Rickenbacker was very thankful. And as a result, every Friday evening, the old captain walked to the end of the pier, his bucket full of shrimp, and his heart full of thanks. We would be wise to do the same. Maybe not with a pier and not with a bucket of shrimp, but certainly with a heart full of thanks. Because we actually have a lot in common with Eddie Rickenbacker. We too are saved by a sacrificial visitor, we too are rescued by one who journeyed far from where God only knows, and we're not alone. A long time ago, in the story we find here in Matthew 15, a man came to a, a group of people who are hurting and hungry, people who are out of options, people who had no hope, people who are in desperate need of a miracle. And the miracles occurred. 
Let's turn to our text for this morning, Matthew 15, verses 29 through 39, where we see that the hurting come to Jesus. The hurting come to Jesus. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now this is not the day that Jesus fed the 5,000. This is the day that he fed the 4,000. Different day, different event. Although they have a lot in common, they're different in several respects. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he was with the Jews. When he fed the 4,000 plus women and children, he was with Gentiles. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he taught them and healed them. When he's with the 4,000, there's no record that he taught them, only that he healed when Jesus was with the 5,000, he was there one afternoon. When he's with the 4,000, he's there with them three days. And for three days, he did the most remarkable thing. We read here in verse 30 that he healed them. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. Now think about that. There's a lot of times I wish that Matthew and the other New Testament writers would be a bit more descriptive. You know, they should have taken a creative writing class or something. This is one of those times, because that phrase, and he healed them, I think is way too short a phrase to describe what happened, to describe that scene and again, you're going to have to let your imagination go. Go ahead and close your eyes. Picture this scene in your mind. Jesus is sitting on a hillside. There is a great crowd spread out before him. Can you see it? Can you see the blind husband seeing his wife for the first time? His eyes gazing into her. Tear-filled eyes like she's queen of the morning. Envision a man who has never walked, walking. You know, he doesn't want to sit down. I imagine that he ran and jumped and danced with his daughters. What about the mute who could speak? You can picture him sitting by a fire late into the night and just talking and talking and talking and saying and singing everything and anything that he'd ever wanted to say and sing. Picture the deaf woman who could now hear. What was it like when for the very first time she heard her child call her Ima, which is Hebrew and Aramaic for mom? And this went on for three days. On and on and on, person after person, mat after mat, crutch after crutch, and smile after smile. No record is given of Jesus preaching or teaching or instructing or challenging or anything else. He just healed. And it's amazing. 
And I think there's some great lessons for us in this scene. And the first one is that faith is found in unlikely places. Bishop Rao once uh, said, it's grace, not place, which makes people believers. And that's true. One would have expected to find strong faith among the people of Israel. They had the Old Testament. They had all the benefits that went with being Jewish. The last place you would expect to find faith is in Gentile territory. But it's the Canaanite woman and the Gentile people who believed, and it's the people of Galilee who didn't. Which means we should be very careful about saying things like, this person will never come to faith, or that he or she is too far gone to believe. <coughs> you don't know that yet. It's often the most unlikely people who do come. After all, God reached you. He can reach anybody. I mean, who would have expected Saul, the first great persecutor of the Christians, to be converted? Yeah, he became the very first missionary to the Gentiles. John Newton, converted slave trader, wrote down on one occasion, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. So that's the first thing. Faith can come, can be found in unlikely places. Second, we see we should be encouraged to come to Jesus. Be encouraged to come to Jesus. You may think that you're too sinful to come to Jesus, that Jesus could never care about you. This text teaches us that's completely wrong. If Gentile dogs, as we saw last week, if they can come, you can come too. If you've never turned from sin to trust Jesus as your Savior, do it now. Jesus himself said, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in John 6, he says, All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to Jesus. Third, come especially if you're hurting. Come to Jesus especially if you're hurting. Jesus cares for people. It doesn't matter what your problems might be. The multitudes are hungry. Many are sick. The Canaanite woman had an afflicted daughter, and Jesus fed the hungry and healed the sick and cured the girl's demon possession, soothed the mother's heart. You really think he's going to do less for you? And then fourth, and this one's hard, needy people will often find more compassion in Jesus than in Jesus' people. Find more compassion in Jesus than in Jesus' people. Ouch. See, the disciples here aren't much help, either with the Canaanite woman or these Gentile crowds. They're not much help one-on-one. They're not much help with the masses. And that shouldn't surprise us. It should be expected. Because they're poor, sinful people themselves. They're not the answer to these problems. It's no different today. It's the same. Today's disciples aren't always more helpful than those first followers. So what? If you've been disappointed by God's people, don't quit. Don't give up. They're probably trying. It's just that they're sinners too. 
who come to Jesus, that's what they should be telling you anyway. The hurting goes straight to Jesus. But we don't just see hurting people in this passage. We also see hungry people. Maybe these used to be the hurting people, but now they've been healed. Or maybe these are the people who brought the hurting people. And maybe it's both. Either way, we see that the hungry stay with Jesus. The hungry stay with Jesus, starting at verse 31. Or 32, excuse me. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Well, since the crowd of 4,000 had been with them now three days, they've used up all their food. And our Lord's compassionate heart isn't going to allow uh, them, uh, the disciples, to send all the people away. He says, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. And so the first motive for this miracle is simply meeting human needs. People had seen his miracles, glorified God, so it's not for the purpose of preaching or, or teaching or authenticating his ministry. But it is as if Matthew has this deep desire to gather together a number of incidents in the life of Jesus which point forward to the primarily Gentile church that he would serve. And although Matthew is written to the Jewish believers, there is this strong Gentile flavor present throughout the gospel. And we see that here in Matthew 15. In the first story, uh, we saw that the Jewish food laws were annulled. Then Jesus journeyed up to Gentile uh, country, and he heals a Gentile girl. And now Gentile crowds are taught and cared for, healed, and showed the signs of the Messiah's presence, which is prophesied long ago by Isaiah. And it's just as the Jews had been. And now the Gentiles are fed with the same heavenly bread that Jesus had made available to the Jewish children of the kingdom. And once again, it's not hard here to see the allusion to the Lord's Supper, the bread of heaven by which Matthew and his church were nourished. They will have seen communion as a continuation of these miraculous feedings of tired and worn out people which Jesus had generously provided for during his ministry, and also as a foretaste of the messianic banquet in heaven. But I think the miracle does have a special purpose for his disciples. you got to wonder about these guys. I mean, kind of amazed they had forgotten the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, they're perplexed. It says in verse 33, the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? We've already been through this. We did this whole feeding on the hillside thing back in chapter 14. You think they'd be telling the people, hey, no problem. 
Jesus is able to multiply, multiply our loaves and fishes. No need to worry, we got this. But they don't say that. Maybe they thought he wouldn't perform that kind of miracle for Gentiles. Or he wouldn't do that in Gentile territory. We don't know, we're not specifically told. But as in the feeding of the 5,000, this miracle takes place in Jesus' hands. As he breaks the bread and gave it to his disciples, the bread multiplied, everybody ate and was satisfied. And Jesus ordered the fragments to be collected so that nothing is wasted. And even the ability to perform miracles doesn't grant the authority to waste God's gifts. And Jesus doesn't preach a sermon to this crowd on the bread of life as he did to the Jews in Capernaum following the feeding of the 5,000. You can read that sermon in John 6. The facts about Old Testament manna and the bread of God would have been foreign to these Gentiles. Jesus always adapted his teaching to the needs and understanding of the people to whom he was ministering. But the, the healing miracles and this feeding miracle is not the most important thing about the story. What's most amazing is these aren't Jesus' people. Didn't he just tell the Canaanite woman a few verses earlier in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the important thing is this. Matthew includes the story of the feeding of the 4,000 because... These people are Gentiles, which actually makes it a sequel to the story of the Canaanite woman. But in spite of them being Gentiles, one, these people are healed just as the Jews had been healed. Two, they're fed just as the Jews had been fed. And three, he uses the disciples to serve them just as the Jews had been served by the disciples during the feeding of the 5,000. In the feeding of the 5,000 Jews, there were 12 baskets of food left over, signifying the inclusion of the 12 tribes of Israel on the 12 uh, gates of New Jerusalem, which had the names of the 12 disciples. 12 is an important number to the Jews. Here in the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, we're told there's seven baskets left over. We learned in our study of the book of Revelation, seven is the number of completeness, signifying the completion and fullness of Christ's mission, the overabundance of his love and mercy in the gospel. And it still extends today throughout the world to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. What better way to teach that Gentiles are just as important to God as the Jews are? What better way to teach both then and now that the gospel, that Christianity is worldwide, it goes to everyone. Nobody's barred from coming to Jesus. And so we read that the people praise the God of Israel. It's not something the Jews would have said. They would have said, our God. Or maybe they would have said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Gentiles would have said, their God, the God of Israel. And that's what they say. It's a natural thing for the Gentiles to say. And that reveals something very important for us in this text. And that's the glory of being with Jesus. Let's go back to verse 30. The glory of being with Jesus. It says, Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, 
many others, they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Matthew wrote, the crowd wondered. They were just amazed. They looked around and they had brought these people with them. And there were people who were blind who could see. And they were like, what's that? That's blue. And there's people there that can talk who've never spoken before. And there's people that can hear who've never heard before. And there's people running around all over the place who've never run before. They wonder. There's 4,000 amazed people. More than that. Each telling this story that's grander than the other story. Do you see the guy walking? You know, we brought him in here. He couldn't walk. We had to carry him. You know, what am I going to do with this mat? You know, Matt, Matt was used like a stretcher. The hillside is now littered with stretchers. They don't need any more. And, and standing amidst of all these amazing stories and people just being, you know, wondering and amazed, I, I, I have this picture of Jesus just watching all of this and smiling. You know, there's no complaining, there's no postponing, there's no demanding. He's just enjoying the moment. And then Matthew gives us another phrase, which I wish he would have elaborated on. He says, and they glorified the God of Israel. I have to wonder, how did they do that? What does that look like in the midst of all these miracles and these people running around and singing and listening to songs and all these things they've never done in their whole life? And everybody else saying, wow, this is so cool. And they glorified the God of Israel. The Bible essentially says when people glorified the God of Israel that they worship. And I can give you a whole lot of verses that, but they're worshiping God in the midst of that because they don't know what else to do. It's so amazing. And so I wonder, how did they do that? You know, I'm pretty sure how they didn't do that. I'm more sure of how they didn't do that than how they did. I feel confident they didn't wait for the worship team to lead them. We got a great worship team. I appreciate them, but they didn't wait for the worship team. I'm pretty confident they didn't wait for the elders to come up to tell them to repent and believe. I love it when our elders come up and tell us to repent and believe. We need that constant reminder. But I don't think they were waiting for anybody to tell them uh, on that day. And I'm pretty confident that they didn't sit in these rows and stare at the back of each other's heads. And I seriously doubt if they wrote a plan on how they're going to praise this God whom they had never before worshipped. I'm pretty sure there were no arguments over psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs. And they may not have even known what the Sabbath was. In all probability, they just did it. It was the instinctive, immediate reaction to being amazed by God. And each one, in his or her own way, with his or her own heart, just praised the name of Jesus and glorified the God of Israel. Perhaps some came and just fell at Jesus' feet. Perhaps some shouted his name over and over again. Maybe a few just went up to the top of the hillside, looked up into the sky, and smiled. 
And again, picture the scene of all these people that are surrounded by all these amazing things that have just happened. I can picture a mom and dad standing speechless before their healer as they hold their newly healed baby. I know a little bit more now about little babies who need healing. Those that don't know, I have a grandson. He's now two pounds, 10 ounces. Two more ounces and he will have doubled in size. I've learned a little bit about little babies who need healing. I can envision a leper staring at lost limbs that have been replaced, staring in awe at the one who took away their terror. I spent an hour yesterday with Tom Kinneman at the hospital after he had his left uh, leg about halfway up his calf amputated. And I now know a little bit more about people with lost limbs who need healing. And there were dozens of these healings of all these different kinds and throngs of people pressing forward, wanting to get close to Jesus. Not to request anything, not to demand anything, just to say thank you. Maybe someone wanted to pay him. You know, what, what kind of payment is sufficient when you get your leg back or when you get your sight back? You can walk. You've never been able to walk. How do you put a price tag on that? Perhaps some tried to return his gift with another gift. What can you give to express that level of gratitude now that you can see and speak? You've never been able to do that before. All that people can really do is exactly what Matthew says that they did. They glorified the God of Israel. And however they did it, they did it. And Jesus is touched, so touched that he insisted they stay for a meal before they leave. And without using the word worship, I think this passage defines it. Worship is when you're aware that what you've been given is far greater than what you're able to give. Worship is that awareness. Would it not be for Jesus' touch, you'd still be uh, among the hobbling and the hurting and the hungry. Worship is that half-glazed expression on the parched face of a desert pilgrim when he discovers that the oasis is not a mirage. Worship is a thank you that refuses to be silenced. We've tried to make a science out of worship. We can't do that. Worship is this voluntary act of gratitude offered by the saved to the Savior, offered by the healed to the healer, offered by the delivered to the deliverer. And if you and I can go days without feeling this urge to say thank you to the one who saved us, who healed us, who delivered us, then we do well to remember what is it that he did. You remember the disciples of John the Baptist? One time, Matthew 11, they came to Jesus. They said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And I love how Jesus responded. He didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the man. No need to look anywhere else. That's not what he said. He said, you go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. 
Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You think those people on the hillside that can now see are offended? Think those people who are cleansed are offended? Those people who can walk and hear and speak? Probably not. So we have to ask, when you come to the end of this passage, what miracle do you need? What miracle do you need? You can probably think of a number of things, but I'm going to suggest something for you. Let me suggest that you've already received the miracle that you need. You've already gotten your miracle. And I say that because the greatest miracle of all time was Jesus' death and resurrection that redeemed you from the guilt and power of sin. Perhaps this morning Jesus is saying to you, in the words of Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You know, it's hard to believe today it's going to be 73 degrees, they say, but a week ago we had snow on the ground. They say we're going to get a lot of it this winter, certainly more than last year. I wasn't ready for the snow. You know, you're supposed to get ready for winter. I wasn't ready. I still had fall leaves on the ground uh, in my yard. Hadn't gotten out there to clean up after the dog. Hadn't gotten the grill cover out to cover up and protect the grill. And you know, the snow doesn't care what I have or haven't gotten done. It just comes. You know something, whatever you left out on the lawn gets covered up. It doesn't matter if it's fine china or dirty diapers. It snows four inches, all you see is white. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And this Christmas, despite your hurts, despite your hungers, despite your problems, despite your baggage, despite your sins being like scarlet, when Jesus looks at you, one of his redeemed children, all he sees is white. How will you respond? How will you respond? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. Thank you that you've given us a savior, that you've given us a healer, that you've given us a deliverer. Thank you that our sins be like scarlet. All you see is white. This Christmas remind us that the best response to the work of Christ is simply to stop what we're doing and worship him. Help us to do that now. Help us to sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king.
And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.